You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Well, good morning, church. It's good to worship with you this morning. Um, hopefully you got all the announcements there. If you don't know, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is truly an honor to worship with you this morning. Um, I want to, if you weren't here last week, we started a new uh, book, a new minor prophet, the book of Haggai. Um, now, uh, our last series, if you remember Nahum, was, was filled with a lot of judgment there was a lot of scary language, warlike language. Um, and what I've loved about this book uh, is that Haggai really is, it's refreshing because it, it really is meant to encourage. And I don't know about you, but it, it is deeply relevant for me. I, I, am, I am often in need of uh, encouragement. I, I think I'm one of those individuals that gets easily discouraged, so I'm not, I'm not sure about you. Um, but I want to give you a quick refresher of what happened last week on Haggai. We, we saw that the Assyrians of Nahum's day had been destroyed by the Persians, and the Persians, uh, they were now the ruling empire, and they sent back the, uh, the remnant of Israel to rebuild the, the temple. And rather than trying to rebuild the temple, the remnant um, instead worried about their own homes, and they ceased to worry about God's house. And it was broken, and what could they do? The task seemed uh, far too big. And so that's really where chapter one of Haggai comes into play. The prophet, if you remember, calls them out. And the end of the chapter of Haggai, chapter one, ends this way. It says, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am, uh, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shelatiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord. So what we saw at the end of chapter one was the people were stirred up. They were inspired, not just the leaders, but the people, the remnant, those who were there in Israel, they were stirred up and inspired to begin working on the house of the Lord. And this is really where our story begins. I have three points. It's facing discouragement, resisting discouragement, and defeating discouragement. Uh, before we unpack the word of the Lord, let us, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us your word, and we thank you that we can come to you, to your throne of grace, and rejoice that we get to know you more. Lord, I pray that you use your word to, to build us up, to encourage us, to bring about repentance. Lord, you are kind and you've dealt bountifully with us. And may we rejoice in that and praise you, not only during your word, but during song. We thank you for days like this. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first point is facing discouragement. Now, it should be no surprise that right after these people get to work, their expectations of what they thought would happen would be, would be shattered. And I'm sure you know the feeling of expectations being shattered. We get stirred up, right? We get inspired, uh, and we start off strong, but, but before long, your head hangs low. And whether it was New Year's goals, right? That's usually when it happens, when you said, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to challenge myself to get in more shape or to lose weight. I'm going to read through the Bible. We hit rough patches and discouragement uh, seeps in. And before you even got going, you've all but abandoned the task that you had set for yourself. 
Now look at chapter 2, verse 1, and this is what we're going to see uh, with these people in today's pas- passages of verses 1 through 9. It is the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now I want to stop there because the timing and the date is important. It gives some very needed context. If you open up uh, Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, what you'll see is that the first verse is that this was given to Haggai on the sixth month of the first day. Now chapter 2 starts off with the seventh month on the 21st day. So it's been around 50 days, almost two months, since the beginning of this massive project. And what we're going to see is that these people are deeply discouraged and have already quit building. And we're going to see the first reason for their discouragement. Reason one for their discouragement was slow progression. Their progress was hard to see. There was much to do and it seemed like little had been done. And imagine, right, this large and beautiful temple in ruin that sat for 60 years in a state of disarray and decay. They had it in their head when they were stirred up and inspired that this project somehow would come easy because, well, God gave them the mission. So it should come easy. This came straight from God. Now, I don't know about you, but anywhere I look in Scripture or any mission that we've been put on by the Lord, I... It never, ever is promised to be easy. And so in this case, nothing could be further from the truth. This task was incredibly difficult, and they found themselves really unprepared for the task before them. And I kind of compare this to uh, when I go to the gym, right? That time of the year where I get stirred up, and I'm like, you know what? I need to get in better shape. Uh, I need to take better care of myself. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I go to to the gym, I work out really hard, I lift many heavy things, I pull on heavy strings, uh, you know, I'll get on the bicycle and pedal really fast with less resistance as possible, make me feel better about myself. I'll do all of that, and I look at my watch, I'm like, oh my goodness, like my heart feels like it's coming out of my chest, and I look down and I've been working out for like 30 minutes to an hour, and I'm like, okay, I... Surely, I need to go check the mirror because something's changed. And you do. You go look in the mirror and what's different, right? Nothing, right? You're not, you're not, the, you're not the rib stud you, would, you were hoping to be after all that 30-minute workout. You're not the stallion of the past. For me, I look at the mirror, I'm like, I'm the same 40-year-old man. I, nothing's changed. And when that happens, when there's that slow progression, we begin to think, well, what's the point and there's nothing quite like the weapon of discouragement to keep you from working, to make you, to make you start asking, why am I even trying to do this? This is, this, is take, this is way too much work than I thought it would be. Here they thought they could reverse 60 years of negligence and destruction with a solid month of work. And that's truly as silly as think I can reverse a decade of poor eating with an hour of working out. It just doesn't work that way. But we do it all the time. Right? We can identify the thing we struggle with. We can identify the weak and sinful habits we create. We can identify where we're lacking. Yet when we fail to quickly overcome the sinful habit that we spend a lifetime creating, right? what do we think? We, we throw up our hands and say, you know what? I'll never get it. This is too big for me. What's the point? 
I think that's exactly what's happening to some of the people here. That's what they're asking. The discouragement and slow progression was compounded for a second reason. Reason two for the discouragement was distractions. Now, as we read in verse one, there, this was the seventh month, the 21st day that the Lord spoke through Haggai. Now, the seventh month was a busy month for, for the Jews. The first day of the month was a holiday, so the seventh month started off with a bang. It was the Feast of Trumpets, and it was a day filled with resting and eating. Now, you didn't prep your food on the day because that's not very restful. They prepped it days leading up to it. And then, of course, they ate and rested on that day, on that first day. The next day, it was clean up and leftovers. It was their version of Thanksgiving. On the 10th day, right, you had another holiday. You had the Day of Atonement, a giant church service, a sacrifice. But these things needed at least a day of prep. And there was a process for leaving that holiday. Five days after the 10th day, they had another. On the 15th of the seventh month, they had another holiday. It was the great festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. And that holiday lasted for seven days. So really, for the first 21 days, they're busy, hence why the Lord waits on the 21st day of the seventh month to say, all right, what are you, you going to do? They haven't even really had time to work. So why is the Lord coming to them? They barely had time. Now, these holidays were not meant to be distractions. They're meant to be reminders. But given the discouragement that comes, these holidays did not feel like reminders, right? But something that was taking up much needed time. It was this, man, this worshiping the Lord stuff. There's things to, be, to get done. There's things that we need to do. Ah, uh, but we have to go worship. We have to have a church service. We have to have a holy day. And right, you would think after worshiping in these holy days, they would come out more stirred up but that, that wasn't the case at all. The Lord waits through these holidays and he comes to them because the Lord knows their hearts. They, he knew that there had been slow progression, slower than what they had in mind. And despite these holidays being supposed to be a reminder of why they're doing what they're doing, somehow, like us, our depraved hearts turns things that are blessings into obstacles. Now God doesn't yell at them for getting down, which I love. Because it's, it really shows me, by the way, oh, maybe how, where as a father I need to improve. Right? When my kids get discouraged, I typically don't respond this way. The way that our father deals with us. He doesn't chastise them for forgetting why they're doing what they're doing. Yet despite them struggling to labor in the kingdom, throwing up their hands, the Lord is, deals kindly with them in their discouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 2 or 3 of chapter 2. He says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? This is directed at the remnant of Israel who saw 
This first temple, the temple of Solomon, in all of its glory, they remembered how amazing it was. He says, you see it now? Right? They were like Daniel, who, who like was taken away as a child. But after a month, they gave up. And what he's asking them is, is don't you care? Is it nothing in your eyes? Don't you care? Now, he knows they do because if they didn't, they wouldn't be discouraged about it. We don't typically get discouraged about things we don't care about. He knows they do. They're just distracted by their own self-pity. And listen, self-pity can be a dangerous thing. The self-absorbed cannot see the bigger and grander picture. They can only see what they do not have, what they do not get, and what they didn't get to experience. And the Lord is facing off against their self-pity, and he's challenging them. Doesn't this matter to you? You love me. I know you love me. Doesn't my temple matter to you? You see, reason three for the discouragement was grumbling. Now, I know this is hard to imagine, grumbling over a church building project, but believe it or not, it existed in the Old Testament as well. We actually see more details in the account of Ezra. Uh, by the way, if you're looking for a book to study the next two weeks, go read Ezra. It gives, it is this happening in the same time as Haggai, and this is overlapping, and you can get a lot more details of some of the issues they're having on the ground. But uh, uh, Ezra's books are full of details about rebuilding this temple. And this is one of the interesting ones that's happening in this time of chapter 2 of Haggai. It says, uh, this is verse 12, uh, chapter 3 of Ezra. But many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's house, old men who had uh, seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. These old generations looked upon the sad little structure they were building. And they remembered the house of old, Solomon's house, and all they could do was weep and think about how, man, it was so much better in our day. That's why I asked in verse 3, who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Right? Rather than grumbling how it was, it should hurt you to see how it is. Back in my day, it was far greater than this. Back in my day, it was glorious. I don't believe you can be on mission, on the mission of God while living in the past. And their grumbling got them nowhere. And their negativity spread like wildfire. It, it's, negativity is contagious. In fact, if you read, you keep reading in Ezra 3, what you find is the people who are, really are encouraged, who are doing the best they can, they're trying to shout for joy over what's happening, but they can't outshout the negativity and the grumbling of older generations, who all they see is disappointment and despair. And what does that bring outside of discouragement? Listen, make sure the blessings of the past does not compromise the mission of today. And there's no point in navel-gazing of a time gone by. In fact, I, not to go too much on a rabbit trail, but Titus 2 lays out 
older men and older women what you're called to do. It's to be sober-minded, be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, steadfast, not slanderous, to teach what is good, to teach young men, older women, you're to teach uh, younger women, and to train children. That's what it's called. That's what we're called to do. Nowhere else does it say, older generation, you are allowed to grumble and remind the present generation of how horrible it is. It's not there. It's not there that you're you're, you're to grumble and talk about how much, how much difficult it is to be faithful to God today. They already know. I've heard, and I know how easy it is, because though I'm, I'm still a young stallion, kind of, <laughs> there's, there are generations, you know, that are growing. I mean, kids I used to teach are now married and having children. And I find myself doing the same thing. You know, when 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is, you know, 20 years ago. I think of how often we hear about how much our culture, community, how easier it was to share the gospel, how easier it was to talk about Jesus in the workplace. We may brag about the past and the less divisions and the arguments on, on moral questions. I think when we do that, our, our version of history is very skewed. But instead of that, why not encourage and embolden and not do what the, the, the old heads in Haggai's day did, which was grumble. Because at best, what are you going to get? You're going to get what happened to Haggai, which is people are going to agree with you. And they're going to, you're right. It is too hard. It's not as good. What's the point? But even when we grumble, which all of us do, God is patient. In fact, he meets them where they're at and he gives them some reminders to resist the temptation to sit in their discouragement. And that's our second point, resisting discouragement. Haggai 2, 4 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And so God gives the first answer, the first key to resisting discouragement, and it is be strong. He says it three times unless you miss it the first two. Now, this seems like odd advice. God, why would you tell them to be strong. They're not strong. That's the problem. They're discouraged because they realize they're not strong enough to make this happen, to get the work done. I mean, just imagine someone who struggles with anger saying to them, you know what, just, you struggle with, just don't be angry. You ever tried that? Or to the person that has anxiety, well, just stop worrying. Just don't be anxious. To someone struggling with pornography to go, you know what, just watch, just stop looking. Only if it were that easy. Now Haggai is not telling them, be strong and lift yourself up by the bootstraps. Because that message is sure to bring discouragement because you won't be able to. No matter how much you work out in the gym, you'll be too heavy. The call is to be courageous. That's what he's telling them. Be courageous. Now as Christians, we should expect that we will have to be courageous, that we will be a courageous 
people. Because scripture tells us, tells us that there's going to be hardships. Right? We know that there are threats, there are rough times coming, and I don't mean global events. I'm not talking book of Revelation events. When I say hard and, and difficult times, I'm talking about personal and deep issues. Things like death and sickness and disappointment. All the things that we know individually are a possibility, but we just never really think are going to be a reality. And I think because of that, we often think these threats really won't ever reach us. Which is why we're so surprised when they do. When these difficult tasks find, our, find themselves in our laps and we don't know what to do with it. And our faith, it doesn't become shipwrecked, it just becomes obsolete. And at that point, we tend to take matters in our own hands and attempt to build a more comfortable world for ourselves. And think about it, that's exactly what the people of Haggai did. It was too big for them. So what did they do? We'll just build nicer homes for ourselves. We'll, we'll worry about our own comfort. It just got too hard. And they retreated back into themselves. But the Lord tells them, listen, don't, don't retreat. Be courageous. To be courageous is not to be reckless, right? It's, it is to be bold. It is to charge ahead knowing what it might cost. It's being faithful in the mission because you have faith in the one who sent you. It's trusting that he is strong enough. We're just called to trust in the strength of God and listen, that, that takes courage. Be strong in the faith. Be courageous and strong. Trust in the strength of God. Listen, it's a must if you're going to face down the enemy's weapon of discouragement. You must know that you're not strong enough. It's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Be courageous enough to labor in the kingdom, knowing that there's one who's stronger that works through you. You don't have to be strong enough. That's the beauty of it. You have to be courageous and trust in his strength. Haggai 2.4 continues. He says, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here we have the second key to avoiding or Resisting discouragement, it is, you're not alone. It's one thing to know that there's a God who's greater and more powerful than you. It's another thing entirely to know that this God is with you. Now, Dad, in our house, is uttered about 245 times per hour by my children. Uh, my son will oftentimes say dad a second time before he's even gotten completed with the first dad. It sounds something like this. It goes, da dad, da dad. And then there's like a rapid fire, da 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 And I'm like in the other room, like he sees me. I'm like, what do you want? And oftentimes, my kids, when they're yelling for dad, they don't want anything. They just want to know that I'm there, that I'm with them, that I'm in the house, and that's usually what they tell me. We just didn't know where you were. We wanted to see where you were. 
Listen, I, I think this is wonderful advice from children to us and often what we need to, rem- to be reminded that we're not alone. To call in the name of our spiritual father because we can. And to be reminded you're not alone. There's a confidence that all children have. There's an anxiety lost, a newfound courage when kids know that their dad is near. And it's far easier, by the way, to have courage when you know the Lord is with you. Think about it. When Joshua was leaving the promised land and he's distraught and concerned and worried that he's taking over uh, for Moses um, and now he has to lead these people. What does the Lord tell him in verse 9 of chapter 1? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Right? The same God who told Haggai, right? Labor for my kingdom because I'm with you. It's the same God who tells us to Joshua. It's the same God who tells the same thing to you. The message hasn't changed. You heard it last week. You hear it again now. Matthew 28, 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear the same message? Goodness, I hope you do. Labor. Even with these impossible tasks. Why? Because the Lord is with you. Fight and resist discouragement by remembering your God is with you and will not forsake you. Verse 5 reads, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The third key to resisting discouragement is to remember the promise. Now you see here in the verse 5, it says, according to the covenant. You might be going, what, what covenant is that? Now God declared that Israel, the family that you've been adopted into, would be his own possession from among all people, and he had given them the assurance that they, that he would dwell among them. Now that is a promise that they clung to. That, that the Lord is going to dwell with them. This is what they wanted. It's why they were discouraged. They couldn't get the temple completed. And I imagine, if they're anything like me, they would have been building this temple and they would have looked at it and gone, you know what, this thing is a sad, sad mess. This is an inferior temple and God, God's not going to want this. He's not going to be happy with this. This is, a, this is not worthy of God, and why would he want to dwell in it? Now, it's true. The temple was not worthy of God. There is no temple that can contain the, the glory of God. Nothing built by human hands can, can be created worthy enough of his dwelling. But here's the beauty. The question on why would God want to dwell in a place like this is because he made a promise that he would. Knowing that humans cannot create a place good enough, God fulfilling his promise to his people was not dependent on their building skills. They, by their own ability, they could only do so much. But little did they know the work that would begin through them, God would bring that temple to completion 
And what they didn't know was that this temple would be bigger and grander than the temple that they had seen. It would be bigger and grander than even Solomon's temple. But all of this is a beautiful foreshadowing of a grander promise where his spirit is not simply in our midst, but where his spirit is indwelling in us. His new temple. I know often we sit back and we get deeply discouraged because we look at our lives and we look at our struggles and the sins that we continually struggle with and fall into, and we think, okay, God, this, this temple is not worthy of you. I am not worthy of you. Then you get that question, do I even love him? Am I even really a Christian? Well, listen, you're right. You're not worthy of him. But that's not why he dwells with you. He does so because he made a promise to you. He made a promise to his people that he would dwell with them and that a greater temple was coming, even than Solomon's temple or even bigger than the second temple that it would be his people that would be his temple. And listen, when he purchased this new temple on the cross, he knew what he was getting. Right? He knew the renovation that would have to happen, and he knew this temple would need work and that he would be the only one strong enough to complete it. Now think about this. And this is what I love. If there's nothing that makes me more encouraged than this in days of struggle, that the Lord says that those who are his, that he will present you as holy and blameless without blemish. Not a temple in disarray and disrepair and nastiness, but one that is holy and without blemish. What a promise. And what a reason to be stirred up to pursue him and his kingdom. It's a promise that we can remember as we fight against sin and seek holiness. It's a promise that should give hope rather than discouragement. And I think in the end, it's the promises of God that will uh, inevitably defeat discouragement, which is the final point, defeating discouragement. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The first promise we see is that he's going to shake. He's going to shake it all. He's going to shake both earth and the nations that dwell on it. First, it's clear, and what Haggai and the people need to be reminded of is that God is over all kingdoms. And those governments that seem to be their adversaries, that seem to be your adversaries, all they do is unknowingly move into place where God has predetermined them to be. They're kings on strings. Just like God uses the Persians, he used the Egyptians. Just like he uses the Greeks, he did the Assyrians. Just as he's going to use the Romans, he did it with the Babylonians. The nations will not be able to stop his kingdom from coming and growing. That was true then, it was true now. No king, no government will stop his kingdom from being established and growing. It's not just that he's over creation. 
literally the Lord tells us that he works all things out, right, for his glory and our good. Understanding the power of God should crush discouragement. As he promises that everything will shake and all the knees will bow. We see promise, too, that he will gather. Uh, If you don't mind putting uh, verse 7 back on the screen for me. It says, And I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God will gather for himself what he needs to ensure that his kingdom is built. Now, in the context of Haggai and Ezra, uh, we actually see this happen. Uh, In Ezra 6, there is political pushback in helping the people of Israel rebuild their temple. Right? They, the kingdom had their own needs, let alone building a temple that they worshipped in. Uh, and by chapter 6, the king of Persians, King Darius, right, this king on a string, this is what he declares. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. Go read it for yourself. He goes on to tell what he's going to send and what they're going to do in this house. In essence, they're going to do what God commanded. This is a pagan king. Unknowingly, under the influence of God, it provides permission and resources for it to be rebuilt. Because in the end, all of the resources belong to the Lord. God shows them that he will provide. His kingdom is not going to come to a standstill due to a lack of resource or a lack of talent. Now this same God, who is all he needs to rebuild a temple, has also provided whatever spiritual riches that are needed for his glorious house, which is you, the church, to grow and to be built. Sometimes we think somehow the church is lacking in what we need in order for us to spiritually grow, and that just simply isn't the case. The Lord has wonderfully and graciously provided all your needs, all your spiritual giftings to his house. Now, what gets me in all of this is God, think about it, he spoke the world into creation. Simply, you know, let it be, and it was. Now, God could have done this with the temple, right? God could have said, Uh, I want a temple, and there it was. But he doesn't, which is interesting to me. Rather, he, he found it good and necessary for men and women to labor over a time rebuilding a temple. What I think this is is simply a foreshadowing of the process of building the greater temple, that is the church, and we would simply call that today sanctification, to remind us that building and growing, it takes time. The building wasn't made overnight, and you're not going to be the Christian that you want to be or ought to be overnight. It takes a lifetime. And on your deathbed, you'll still say, I never made it. Remembering this process in which we grow in holiness where we build on the cornerstone that is Jesus, reminds us that we spend a lifetime building our lives to be a memorial to Jesus. 
but we need to remember that he supplies all the gifts, all the spiritual necessities for growth and maturity and faith. And again, that doesn't happen overnight. And that ought to be enough to uproot discouragement. Now in our house, in the Barry home, we have a, a growth chart, which may seem like a cruel game when you're my children to have a growth chart. Um, and what I've witnessed is a, is a coming jealousy that, that has sprung. I, 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 it's there, and I've seen, I'm seeing it come around the corner, where one child is growing much faster than another. And uh, I remember Claire asking a while back, she asked me, uh, Dad, when will we get tall? And I had to be honest with her. I said, never. <laughs> you'll, you'll get taller. You'll never be tall. But the, the reality is, um, they're children who are friends with other children their age. Uh, people like Will, who sees his kids, and they're taller than their dad. <laughs> and so they see other children, and they're going, uh, well, what's, what's the problem? How come they get growth and, and we don't? How come we want what they have? We're, we're tiny and they're tall. I've had to warn them that they're going to be people who make fun of them because, of, because they're short. And I've explained to them, I don't know why people do it, but that's what people do. And I remember that feeling as a kid when I was their age, you know, wanting to be something else. I, you know, wanting to be taller than I was, wanting to be bigger than what I was, um, you know, comparing myself to other people. But like children, as spiritual adolescents, we do, all, we do that same thing all the time. Right? We, we never really like the rate in which we're growing spiritually. And we compare ourselves to others and, and even will pretend to be more spiritually mature and bigger than what we actually are. And sometimes our moral and spiritual shortcomings, right, they're made fun of and mocked. But I want to give you some encouragement. The Lord gives all the growth. And just like the body, your rate of spiritual growth is different than others. But he has the resources, all the resources. God's not limited by genetics. But he has the resources that make you a giant of the faith. So I don't want you to be discouraged if you're not where you want to be comparing yourself to others, because that's what the people in Haggai did, right? They're comparing this temple to what others had come before them. And comparing is a dangerous game. What the Lord tells us is, rather than that, be courageous, work, and remember the one who gives growth and provides all you need. And we see the third promise, which is he will fill. Verse 7 says, And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. We see that God intends to honor himself by manifesting his glorious presence before the world, before all nations. And God promises to fill this temple with himself. Now, this would happen in such a unique way that the writer or the people hearing this would never even begin to understand it. Because think about it. This second temple is the same temple that Jesus, God incarnate, would worship in as a child. This is the same temple where Jesus would teach 
This would be the same temple that would show the world it is finished and completed by Christ on the cross as the veil tore. That would even show the Gentiles the truth as they would proclaim this man truly was the Son of God. Finally, Haggai encourages them with this beautiful ending where God declares truly what is to come. Verse 8 9 says, The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The light of glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In case they missed it, right? All the promises repeated, and he, he says, I am declaring this, I am saying this, not Haggai, this is my promise to you. Their discouragement came because of their labor struggles, their efforts, right? They, they were too slow. They had too many setbacks. But their discouragement could be destroyed because they could remember these promises that God is at work, that God was using them, and God simply wants their hearts and their hands. He will provide the perfect. He will provide the necessities for growth. He would even provide peace. They simply had to show courage. Don't stop. Don't hang your head in defeat. Like us, right, they needed to be reminded that our God knows nothing of defeat. And when the enemy or the doubting flesh raises the weapon of discouragement, we need to resist it and remember the promises that God gives. And these promises should lay waste to any disappointment. Right? These promises should lay waste to any desire to quit or any tendency to grumble. Because think about it, our Lord has chosen to dwell with you and I. He chose to make us his home so that we may be a testament to the glory of God to the world so we may live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and be a people of peace rejoicing because we know that we're sealed with his spirit rejoicing because he, we know that he chose to dwell in us to the praise of his glorious grace now guys I really pray that you can read this today that you go back and read chapter 2 outside of this meeting and I pray that you're encouraged by the promises and the kindness of our God. And listen, if you look at your place spiritually and you find yourselves where they were at the beginning of chapter 2, throwing up your hands, going, what's the point? Beating yourself up constantly. I want you to remember the grace of God, the promises of God, and exhort you to be courageous and get back to work. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.